Tampa seems to be like a new uh, hotbed for uh, sporting events uh, as well now too, right? There's been a lot of development there recently, but that's like the second or third fight there in the past like four months. And that's the voice of businessman Robbie Clark, and I'm Chris Weidman, and this is Won't Back Down, presented by BioAccelerator. Robbie Clark is a uh, entrepreneur. He is a monster real estate investor who is one of the leaders in single-family homes owned in Canada. Um, he has uh, done all sorts of business ventures from vending machines to landscaping, but he first started off as a childhood actor where he uh, ended up making over seven figures before he was 18 years old. Uh, but he started slowly losing his passion in acting. And then next thing you know, it made some bad decisions and he was going bankrupt at an early age and um, went through some tough times, but eventually found his passion for business and started reading tons of books, gained a lot of knowledge, and he has scaled all of his businesses to the umpteenth degree. And uh, I'm clueless when it comes to that type of stuff. So it was really cool for me to learn from him. And uh, it was awesome. I think this was a great conversation and uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. But before we begin, I want to tell you about Won't Back Down's presenting sponsor, BioAccelerator. BioAccelerator is the world leader in stem cell therapy and regenerative medical research. Through the use of their powerful golden stem cells, they help patients heal from joint and orthopedic injuries, autoimmune disorders, spine and disc damage, and neurological trauma. I went to Medellin, Colombia. I got my stem cells from BioAccelerator and my body feels amazing. I had them inject pretty much any injury I've had from uh, childhood, and I feel like a brand new man. I highly recommend you guys check them out, and I just want to thank BioAccelerator again for sponsoring the show. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Robbie Clark. How was the fights? How was the Jake Paul uh, environment uh, in Woodley fight? Yeah, no, it, it was really cool. And, uh, you know, I've been to some boxing events before and sometimes the, uh, the undercard is lacking a little bit, but this was, uh, this was pretty exciting and it was good to see, um, honestly, this fight was a lot more exciting than the, than the first one. There was a lot more, um, action the whole way through. There's a little bit of controversy with the, either an elbow or a headbutt that opened up a, a big gash. And then of yep. course the, uh, the ending, you know, Jake, um, he landed a bomb. And so it was, you know, the crowd was going pretty nuts. And then you had some drama in the crowd as well, too, with, you know, Jorge Masvidal there, uh, Nate Diaz. And then um, uh, I think the Island Boys at one point uh, got into a fight, too. So it was, you know, you had drama on all ends. It was pretty, it was pretty funny and entertaining. That is awesome. Um, I know, bro. What do you what do you make? What do you make of the Tyron Woodley versus Jake Paul fights? Um, you know, you get a guy who never really... Uh, was a boxer, never really a combat athlete. And then he's in there beating a five-time world champion. What do you attribute that to? You know, um, I think what a lot of people don't know is that the Paul brothers have, have grown up athletes as well, too. They're either Division One or Division II uh, uh, wrestlers, you know, in, in Cleveland. And um, so, you know, part of it is the fact that they, they're coming into the sport, but they've taken the time to, um, uh, you know, treat it properly, especially in Jake's uh, – uh, case he's really been training hard for a few years now and uh, and he sets himself up with the right team so you know there was a tiktok event not too long ago uh, i didn't actually get a chance to watch it but from what i heard it just you know you can tell when people are actually uh preparing for a fight properly or not 
And um, I think he, he just really wants this uh, in regards to Jake. And, um, you know, he's had consistent training for three years. He's like 24 years old right now. He's been an athlete, so he knows what it takes. And then if you see his camp, he's got, you know, a million dollar training camp. So when you have all those things working in your, in your favor, then, uh, you know, obviously you can jump to it a little bit quicker. But I, I would attribute it to the fact that they're athletes. Uh, they've got the youth there and he really wants to be a fighter right now. So. Um, uh, how about the how about the size difference? Does that does that bother you at all? And like the like the the way he's picking opponents, do you think do you think it's uh, he's calculating kind of his his opponents really well? I would say yeah, definitely that's a factor. But I think it's also tough because you're like, well, well, like cruiserweight, who's he going to fight that has a a really big name, right? And so he's been going after mixed martial artists, obviously. But there's a lot more you've got to create some sort of drama and uh and of course he is a he's a bigger guy because you got tyrone fighting at, at 190 i'm not sure what you know jake looks like he probably walks around at like 210 215 um yeah i would say he was he's like a a mid, uh, like a middleweight you know like a like a guy around my size or maybe even like 205 to 185 as far as after cutting weight you know so the 190 mark is a is a great is a great way for him tyrone woodley obviously you know he's probably walking around at that weight and he's a short dude who throws one punch at a time, even as you in, in the UFC fights. I think like I would love to see him. First of all, I would love to fight him. I think he, I, I think he's all right, but I don't think a guy around his own size uh, he has any chance with. I, when I watch his boxing, uh, even the first like four rounds, I did think Tyrone was winning. I thought it was terribly boring. I think it was like one punch clinch, one punch clinch. But at least they were kind of going after each other. Um, I, I would love to see him fight Anderson Silva. I mean, he's, you know, he's calling out all these fighters with UFC contracts. I don't think he's really that none of those are really going to happen at this point. The UFC would have to get behind it, almost like Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather type match. But unless you're drawing in, you know, almost $500 million, like the Mayweather and, and Conor McGregor fights were doing, uh, I don't, the UFC is not doing that, you know, because they, they want to split it. They would split it. But if it's not that type of money, they're not doing it. So wasting our time even talking about Diaz, Masvidal, um, and whoever, uh, Usman, just a waste of to- waste of time talking about it. But that's how he's amping himself up, making himself sound like he'll fight anybody. Um, but he's all, he's calling out all smaller guys than him. Anderson Silva is not in contract. He's a professional boxer. He's been looking great. He just beat a world champion in his last fight, a, a former world champion. That's a former world champion boxer. Um and they're right around the same weight, same size. Like, why aren't we hearing him call Anderson Silva out? I would love to see that. You know, I I, I definitely agree. Anderson is going to be uh, uh, an awesome fight if they were to fight. But again, part of it, it is the the draws. And you're right with Jorge. I'm not sure how many fights he has left on his contract. And I know who's uh, been. I mean, as a champion, that's just that's just not going to happen. Nate only has one fight left on his contract, and um, so I mean, there there is a little uh, more potential there, obviously, but. You know, you're right. He's he's not dumb about the way he's doing it. He's calling out these other fighters. But, I mean, there's no real, like, you, even yourself, you're a bigger name than any of the cruiserweight boxers that I can that I can think of that would possibly challenge there. And that's part of the game, too. I mean, if they got a half a million buys with Woodley, who's, uh, you know, a pretty big um, name for mixed martial arts, he's obviously trying to beat it from there. And I just can't think, again, like, you know, of UFC fighters, UFC fighters at middleweight have a bigger name than a lot of the boxers right now at cruiserweight. That's just a reality. So, that's got to play a factor into it. And, um, you know, if I was saying I'd be doing the same thing too, because looking at it in terms of my, my size, right. Like that's the one uh, advantage he has, even when he's calling Canelo, I mean, Canelo's the you know greatest boxer in the world, undoubtedly right now. Right. And, uh, 
And even him, you're like, well, if there's an eventual fight there, Canelo's, you know, significantly smaller than him. But yeah, I think it's a few factors. I really don't think, even with Fury, Fury's, Fury's definitely at least the same size as him and walks around, you know, he's a big guy. But um, he doesn't look good to me, man. He does no. not look good to me at all. He is not like people like he's got the name because of Tyson Fury. Tyson Fury, I think, is an unbelievable boxer. You know, one of the greatest of all time, I think, at this point. But Tommy Fury is like very amateurish when I'm watching him fight. Like he is not very good. I, I, I still I would take Jake Paul in that fight. Um, and I bet he's calling out Conor McGregor. I mean, that's like me calling out Conor McGregor. This guy has fought yeah. 145, 155. I know he's fought 170, got swole for it. But at the end of the day, that's who he's calling out, these small dudes. It's like, and then people get behind it, and people aren't even talking about the size differences. Yeah. And, of course, the of course the smaller guys, and, you know, they're all tough. Like, all the fighter, even the 170-pounders he's calling out in the UFC and, um, and, uh, and Conor McGregor, they're all going to – be ready to fight them and they they all have a chance of beating them but they're they're giving up a big advantage you know uh they have a big disadvantage when it comes to size and it, i just I can't stand watching this guy just beat up on these smaller guys thinking he's the man no i um, see and the funny part is is that i think logan has been uh built to fight um uh anderson before they were talking about it and it looks like he may or may not fight uh tyson now and i find that funny too because you got two see crossing that. uh you don't want to know i mean I think it's funny how there's a route like Jake Paul has to win his fights. That's that's another thing, too. Right. Whereas Logan, he's actually been a big draw. And it's like, you know, even just to survive against Floyd, where people were like, oh, that's crazy. And to be honest, I wasn't a big fan of that fight at all, because you're like Logan was so much bigger than Floyd that the you know discrepancy in skill is really mass there. Like, obviously, if you were looking at just points, then then Floyd definitely won. But you got a man who's like almost twice the size of you going against, you know, the arguably one of the greatest again of all time, but he's in his forties now and he's, you know, 140, 150 pounds. I don't like to see stuff like that either, but, but, you know, I still, I went to the event. So I say that yet I still went there. Right. And then complain about it after. <laughs> I know it's a spectacle. It's fun to watch. Um, yeah, I'm with you. I got, I work, I'm, I'm cringy even the fact that we've been talking about them for so long, but I'm still <laughs> interested. I tuned in, I watched, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm down to see what happens. You know, I can't believe Tyron Woodley got knocked out like that. That was crazy. I still, I mean, the, he faked to the body, faked the body and just came super hard with that, that, that right hand. And that's really, I think his, that was the way he was going to win that fight. Uh, so props to him for making it happen. And damn, Tyron Woodley's going to have to live with that. You know, he's going to, I seem like they're just comparing him to Ben Asker now and I, he's not going to get another chance. Like that's it. Um, and, um, I don't know who he's going to fight that would give him the draw and excitement that he would need to like elevate him back to where he would feel, uh, you know, like, like people would gather behind him and think that he's legit again. Um, I think his, his, uh, his legacy has definitely been tarnished, which sucks to say, um, it does. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's, let's move off the fights. Let's go into. Rob, tell me your like your credentials. You're a super uh, successful businessman uh, with real estate. Uh, can you just tell everybody kind of your credentials, and uh, we'll start with that. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, um, you know, I've been in uh, involved in uh, business and uh, in real estate for about nine, ten years now. So, um, you, you know, the gist of what we do now is uh, we purchase, you know, refurbish homes. So we go to areas that um, are under the cost of of build and communities that need. You know, um, a lot of help in in uh, in refurbishing uh, properties, like not going to roads where it's you know uh, ghettos or anything like that. We have kind of a really different economy in Canada than we do in the states, but there are a lot of areas that have been flat for a long period of time where you know the properies haven't been uh, upkept well, or they don't have uh, 
you know, really good landlords or property owners helping take care of um, the properties and the tenants. So we go to areas like that. We find about five to 10 properties a week and uh, we purchase them. Then we renovate them and then we hold them for, uh, for long-term rentals. So uh, right now, pretty much everything we own is on, on Ontario, Canada, and we have about uh, 500 properties right now. And um, yeah, in short, that's, that's the majority of what I focus on. I also have a prepared meal uh, company as well, too. We have a, a landscaping company and then, uh, of course, the uh, podcast uh, Inside Fighting as well, too. So um, that's, uh, in, in a nutshell, what, uh, what I do on a day-to-day basis. It's crazy that in 10 years, you built a, a company that now owns over 500 properties. Um, was that like, did you have high goals like that for yourself when you got into real estate? Like I, I'm taking this game over. Um, and, uh, like, how did you, how did you pull that off? Yeah. It's funny. Funny. You said that because that is kind of the approach I've, uh, I've always had in, you know, I grew up in the entertainment business and, and even when I was doing that and acting, I'm like, okay, I want to be extremely success- successful. I want to do very well. Um, but then when I lost the focus on that, like I, I know you had known, but just to, to summarize on that end, like I'd made, you know, seven figures growing up as a teen actor. And then by 21, I was bankrupt because I'd spent all. What were you, what, what movies were you in? Yeah. I want to, this story is great, by the way, this is one of the big reasons I wanted to bring you on because you do have a super inspirational story. Um, I appreciate that. But uh, yeah, dive in a little detail on, on your acting career and, and like how old you were and stuff. Yeah. So I'd started around 11. Actually, one of the first uh, things I did was a, um, a small part in a movie called The Superstar when I was 11 uh, with Molly Shannon and Will Ferrell. Yeah. Um, yeah so I, I was the opening scene there and uh, I, I go on to be uh, Molly Shannon's eventual love interest when I was growing up. But I played uh, Harlan Williams as a kid in that one. But then from there, you know, I went on to uh, uh, do about 20 movies, you know, 10, 15 different shows. Uh, I've worked with uh, like I said, you know, Woody Harrelson, Julianne Moore, Molly Shannon, uh, the Olsen twins in a movie called Switching Goals, uh, Harry Hamlin, Lisa Rinna, um, Wayne Bresky, Drake, like mm. just just everybody in that in that generation from like 11 to 17, 18. I was even on Veronica Mars uh, briefly um, when I when I moved out to California, about 18 years old. So I, I had a really good experience about, you know, of meeting so many great people and seeing what they do. And, uh, you know, a saying, I think I might be stealing this one from Rogan, but is, uh, you know, familiarity breeds uh, uh, confidence. It can also breed contempt, but if you allow it to breed uh, confidence, you can, um, you know, just be more confident in day-to-day life. So mm-hmm. I'd taken that approach because I understood at a young age when meeting these, you know, great people that like, hey, everybody is a normal, you know, human. So, you know, if you want to, uh, you know, if you dare to dream, if you want to do things, there's really no limitations to what you can do. And so although I had that, you know, kind of competitiveness in acting, um, I really liked sports growing up. So I'd played AAA rep baseball, then kind of fell back while I was acting. I played, you know, basketball, Team Ontario, rugby. And then at about 14, 15, before, you know, UFC got cool, um, I remember I purchased my first like UFC uh uh, videos on VHS. So like Frank Shamrock time. And this is mm. when Tito was just starting to get um, big. I went to my my first event in 2002. So that was UFC 40, which was uh, Tito Ortiz, Ken Shamrock one. Wow, and wow. from there, like I'd already been training for like a year, like 14 years old, I started training mixed martial arts, which at the time was like, you know, people weren't really, really doing that. You know, George, how old no, are you? Uh, right now I'm 34. So I was okay. Yeah, yeah, that is really, years ago. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Way Canada, before I started training. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. You, you did a little better. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, um, my mom used to have to drive me to, like, uh, Woodbridge, which is a town like an hour away, just to get jiu-jitsu training in. Because wow. at the time, there was no gyms that were like, hey, we're mixed martial arts. You'd go, you know, to 
this gym for one or try to box at another one. So yeah. uh, mainly I was doing a lot of submission, submission grappling, but no, I'd always, you know, there was a period of time I wanted to be a fighter too. And uh, um, it, that mentality, I think carries over to everything. Like in the business world, you know, uh, I'd always had big goals, but I started with one small home and I was like, well, how do I figure this out? And the great Lorenzo Fertitta said, you know, success is not here to here. It's here to here to here to here. And then up from there. And, and so I've always known that, you know, business is about problem solving. And uh, every time, you know, if you're shooting for big goals, if you walk into a room, like the, the lights are not all going to be on. You're going to walk into a dim room and it's your responsibility from there to problem solve your way to get the rest of the lights on. And when you do that, if you want to grow the next step, you're going to be walking into another room that's dimly lit again. So if you have that approach to, uh, to business and know, hey, you know, the confidence behind it, I, I get the confidence from, from reading, listening to audiobooks two, three hours a day. Like I might have fun and be going out and doing stuff, but I'm religious when it comes to learning about business um, or history or, or, or anything. Because it doesn't have to be, you know, I don't wake up and read books on, on real estate, to be honest. Real estate is something I chose because it's a large market in Canada and I saw a huge uh, need for it because we have a lack of inventory there. Yeah. So, you know, I just try to absorb information from all angles and, and change my, my context in the field I've chosen to be competitive in uh, is business. And, and it's competitive with myself, not with um, with others, because I don't like that that scarcity mentality where you have to try to, you know, take from others to yeah. build yourself. You're trying to create more value and, and help more people. So uh, absolutely. That's why, you know, I always look at a lot of fighters and things and I'm like, Man, if you can do well in this, you're gonna you can dominate business if you have the same uh, approach, you know. Because yeah. if you're if you're two for ten in baseball, you're never making the big leagues. If you're three for ten, you're you're in the all star game. And in business, you know, you can fail as many times. You know, I feel like I found every single way to fail in order to uh, get some momentum and go, you know, to where I am. It takes a a lifetime of work to become uh, an overnight success, as they say. Mm. And uh, and having that approach in my head is like, no, I think I'm I'm the best at this. Whether it's true or not, you know, always remains to be seen. But that's the same with a champion. You have to believe it before you're there. So, you know, it's one of the reasons I like because I feel like mixed martial arts is the toughest uh, sport. You know what I mean? And um, for a number of reasons. And so, uh, yeah, it's just one of the reasons I really appreciate like uh, um, talented athletes and, and entertainers for that regard, because I know how how hard it was to, to get there and to re remain successful. But, you know, the same thing applies. If you want to get good at something, you know, if you want to get good at batting, you go to the batting cages every day. You want to get good at business, you should probably start reading and, and practicing business every day. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's how I it's, feel about it. It's funny you say, like, one thing that really sticks out to me that was great um, is it's, uh, it's a competition with yourself, you know, trying to become the best version of yourself. I'm guessing that's why you're constantly reading these books and, and, and trying to become a better person, gain more knowledge so you're – you bring more value. Um, and it's the same thing with fighting. Some people think, you know, they look at fighters and they're like, you know, they're so competitive and they're trying to beat this other person. Really the goal has always been for me and almost everybody I know it's, it's to be the best version of yourself. It's not, it's not about dominating that person in the cage. It's about being the best version of yourself. And if you did everything right, and if you happen to be better than that guy, you are going to beat him. It, it doesn't, it's not about like, you know, uh, me versus him. It's really the biggest battle is always you versus yourself. Yeah, hundred percent. I can, you know, and that's just a prime example, right? That's it. It's uh, uh, you're always battling against yourself, and no matter what it is, and and you're always going to have problems. This is why, you know, 
another thing people don't understand, like you can wake up in the morning, if you have to go to your car, you got to find your keys and get in there. Well, that's generally a pretty easy problem to solve. Um, but you're still solving a problem, right? And, and people try to, you know, when they live in their comfort zone too much, I find that, you know, little things obviously become bigger problems than they really should. Whereas if you're really trying to strive to have these harder problems and bigger, uh, bigger goals, then, then uh, the little stuff doesn't get to you as much. And, um, you know, you got to learn to enjoy problem solving, like, you know, whether it's in, in sports, you're, you're recovering from injuries or, or, uh, you know, breaking down how you're supposed to fight this fighter or what techniques you're going to improve on. You're, you're just problem solving all day, right? You just yeah. have a positive approach to your problem solving. Yeah. And I think what happens is a lot of people, they, they don't want to put themselves in that situation where they have to solve a problem because there's a chance that you don't solve the problem and then you feel like a failure. But I think what you're saying is that you, you failed so many times because you're, you're putting yourself in those situations. And when you do fail, it doesn't, it's not like you fail and then it's over. It's you learning from that. And you just, you constantly put yourself in those uncomfortable situations where there's a chance of failure and you just keep growing as a person and you feel there's nothing better than doing something that makes you feel uncomfortable, whether it doesn't work out for you or not. You know that you just put yourself in a situation that you didn't want to really do. Like it's easier to stay in your comfort zone, you know? And um, like, you know, I think a good example is like giving public speeches, you know? And um, I, I think it's uncomfortable for almost anybody. Uh, and uh, I don't think it, you know, it gets easier over time the more you do it. Um, but when you first start doing that, when I first started, you know, getting in front of people and speaking, it was, it was nerve wracking and, and I would want to not do it. You know, I would, I would make any up, up, any excuse I could think of to not have to do it. And then you, but just like anything, uh, you know, if you feel like you don't want to do something, you should probably do it, you know, um, because it's going to help you grow and, uh, you know, just, uh, make you a better person and more confident. Yeah. And that's, that's like working out too, right? You never, you, you don't necessarily want to go into the workout, but you don't feel, you never feel bad after you finish the workout. Right. So yeah, of course with public speaking, um, there, there's practice to that as well too. Right. Um, but like you said, you, you went a few times, if you notice problems, like, oh, I'll do this differently. Uh, next time. I remember last time we were talking, you know, um, you were like, you know, first thing I noticed when I was interviewing is how hard it is to not cut people off. And I was like, yeah. And you had, you know, I didn't, you weren't doing that at all. And, and now you're not either. But when, I first started interviewing that's the same thing I noticed. And I was like, oh, well, why do I sound so weird? And uh, why am I cutting everybody off? And then I had to watch an aerial interview and I'm like, what does he do? He just like, okay, he stares in and locks in and, and you know, uh, maybe he's processing his next question. I'm not sure, but it was something that uh, you see there's a talent and there's a, there's a skill to that as well too. Right. Oh, um, 100%. 100%. I was my first interview and Troy's at my producer's the best, but Oh my gosh, the amount of times I said, yeah, as the guy was talking, because I felt like that's what I do in normal conversations, you know, to kind of give them positive reinforcement as they're talking. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, yo, I can't even listen to this, this podcast. This is terrible. And then over time, you learn to just keep your damn mouth shut. <laughs> just yeah. shut your damn mouth when someone else is talking. <laughs> it's funny, what, what you do in a normal conversation doesn't, uh, doesn't go as well when it's being recorded. So yeah, no, I noticed the exact same thing and have to I have to catch myself still, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, so you're uh, you're a kid actor. You're doing great. I, can you go into that? I think you made would you make a million dollars or something like that, and then you had some ups and downs. Yeah, so I made uh, uh, seven figures, and in my head, uh, the pro you know I I thought I was going to be a star my whole life, and uh, the problem was is I started losing focus around fifteen. I got into other things and and uh, just wasn't really into it anymore. So my momentum carried me a few years, but I started really hating. Um, acting and, and, and you know, this happens to athletes a lot too, whether they're on a, 
uh, even sometimes when, when they're at a high or they're at a, at a low, um, that they start, you know, falling out of love with the sport. Mm-hmm. I remember at one time I wouldn't watch anything but comedies like while acting. I was just like, oh, I, I hate it because I guess I've been doing it so long that um, I liked it because of the money. I remember being interviewed for a couple of magazines of being like, oh, I do this for the money. And if you're saying that at like 16, you know, it's probably not going to uh, uh, yeah. end, end well for you there. Right. So yeah, I, you got to really, tell them how much it's your passion and you love acting. And that's how you, you know, that's your creative energy expressed. Yeah, I, I'm the same way when I would go to like auditions and stuff and they would try to ask me like, you know, why I want to be involved in acting and, you know, and I know they wanted me to tell them how much, um, you know, how much I love acting and, you know, being able to express myself this way. I'm like, I kind of just want to make some money and <laughs> I'm not very good at this. I'm not like super into it, but if I can make extra money acting, okay, I'll do it. But you can't yeah. say that. And that, and that's a problem, you know, over time you're going against people who are putting in that work. So they might not have had the momentum. So it can carry you through. I'm like, well, I've been acting. I've done more days on set than anybody here. And, and, but over time, that'll catch up to you, even if somebody started after you. And that's one of the things that also helped me notice that there's a lot about the energy that you put out there as well, too. Um, because it doesn't seem to be like everything seems to correlate the same to me. Because I've been, have I, I've not been an A-list celebrity, but, um, you know, in Canada, I, I, I did very well in, you know, as well as you can as a, as a child actor there. We don't get paid quite the same, but a lot of them were American productions and I was working on those, right? So, um, it, it, but the mentality of it, like even then, I've always remembered when even young, I was five years old, like I remember pretending to be like Roberto Alomar in my backyard, like diving catches and like, oh, I'm going to be in the big league. So as long as I can remember, and that's probably a lot to do with my mom, who's you know always like, hey, you can do whatever. I've always thought I was going to hit uh, the pinnacles of whatever it is that I'm, I'm focused on, but I've noticed every single one, whether it was um, sports or acting or business, the, the mindset played a huge role into it. And if you're not focused on it, like that momentum, momentum can get you. And that's, see, my unfair advantage is, you know, um, I only got like six credits in high school. So, you know, I, failing is fine for me because, you know, you're taught not to fail anything in school, whereas I'm, you know, I had to fail to, to figure things out. And, um, you know, also, uh, what was the other thing there? Also having the ability to, uh, to experience these highs and lows at a, at a very young age, I think is also an advantage too. And then, yeah, like I had said, putting, putting that energy in there and being like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be number one. That's why I don't slip now. Like, it's easy for me to be like, Oh, why do you continue to read? Or maybe you should stop this. It's like, well, I've, I've been there before. And I know what happens when you, when you start to, to cool off and it's only a matter of time, your momentum can can keep you there, but I don't want to do one of these. So I want to try to, to stay on top of my craft as best as I can. Yeah, absolutely. If you're not moving forward, you're going backwards. There's no neutral, you know, you're neutral. You start rolling backwards. You're kind of all on like a little incline, you know, and uh, you have to keep moving forward. Uh, you just fall behind. Um, so wait, tell me about some the, like, so, you know, you, you made your seven figures and then what, what, what kind of crossroad did you come to? So I moved to LA, I think like 2005 and actually trained at 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu for a little while out there. So when Eddie had the gym, it was on Santa Monica, um, we'd do some rolling with Joe Rogan. You had some, uh, some UFC fighters that would roll through there, but I was actually super into training, mixed martial arts and, and then partying as well too. Like not, nothing crazy, but just going out, you know, because uh, the LA scene and the promoters, you know, encourage you to go out there. So just having fun in general, like 17 to 19. Uh, but I wasn't really getting any roles. And unlike in Canada, where I would always be off book, and I was always prepared, like, 
I would go to my auditions in LA, hadn't even gone over my lines. Um, you know, and just, uh, I remember one of them, I was, I was actually, you know, high for the interview. I, I'd smoked before going in because I forgot I had an interview uh, for, for X-Men at the time, actually. And so that was kind of a moment where I knew, too. I was like, man, if I'm that unfocused that I can't remember, like, that I have an audition and then I'm, you know, smoking weed, like, right before the audition is, you know, I knew deep down that that, you know, was not on the right path there. But yeah. I moved back to Canada about 1920 just to, you know, figure out what I was doing. I got a couple roles there, but it just didn't click. And eventually, you know, I, I, I ran out of money and I got a tax bill um, when I was 21 for access contributions to my RRSPs. And I was very financially uneducated at the time. I actually didn't wind up owing it because I'd already blown through my RRSPs. But when I was a minor, the union was over-contributing because I was making so much that there was a tax bill for access contributions dating back years before. For whatever reason, I'd never gotten it. And although I didn't know it, that was actually my my trigger to file for uh, uh, for bankruptcy because I didn't know what else to do and I didn't have good guidance around me. So it was actually for a relatively uh, small amount. But uh, from there, I went to start uh, serving tables and and bartending and stuff, which actually, you know, it was a big deal for me and a huge um, hit to my ego, I guess, or, or pride because growing up, I was like the TV star at, at school. You know, oh, Rob's never here, and when he is, he's just like hanging out and um so people would see me in and uh you know it's embarrassing obviously because i'm making this money driving audis you know supposed to be on tv and now i'm serving tables and i remember like at times i'd you know just try to go though i'm trying to buy you know a home and do these things but you know it got it got kind of awkward but it was the best thing that happened to me because when you're able to to humble yourself like that i remember just before uh going to work at the uh uh restaurants for you know a few years um, my buddy had this flooring company and I was like, Hey, let me do the marketing. And so I got these flyers put together from a buddy and I was too embarrassed to go hand out flyers door to door. So I'd actually go at nighttime. And so one time this, you know, adult or this, uh, you know, dad came out and was like, the hell are you doing dropping off flyers at 1030 at night? And I'm like, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. He's like, get, you know, get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at that point I was like, Again, embarrassed to even like have somebody come out and, and see me do that. But, you know, three years later, when I had started up uh, the landscaping company and bought my first property, that was all gone. That had all been removed. And I trained myself, you know, to love handing out door hangers. And what I do is I would listen to an audiobook and I'd go, okay, two, three hours a day, I'm going to put door hangers on every single door. I don't care. I'm going to learn while I'm doing it with the audiobooks. I'm going to get my 10,000, 20,000 steps in from, from walking as well, too. And, uh, and I'm going to increase my business. And, and I was religious, but long after the point where, you know, we had other people flying and stuff like that, I would do that because I would, I would feel good going out. I'm like, I'm learning, increasing my business and, and getting the steps in. Right. So, um, it was kind of a trifecta and it was just shifting my mind to like, not care about what other people, uh, uh, think or worry about mm. this stuff. Cause ultimately nobody really cares. And I, I was, I was doing these things that, um, you know, just to, to, to hide myself from embarrassment or feel comfortable, right? Yeah. And the problem again with that is that now small problems are big problems. So, you know, that, that's another reason I say being uncomfortable, like, you know, better than anybody in the situations you've been in the most uncomfortable in the world, like going out there to fight for the belt, like the, it's just crazy. It's a different mentality, but, but that's why, um, you know, I feel it's very imp uh, important to keep yourself in, in uncomfortable situations What's stuff that you like, right? I'm not going to, you know, I love real estate, but I'm not going to uh, learn how to uh, 
uh, do taping and mudding on drywall. I've done it once and I'm like, this is not for me. Right. So uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not good with contracting work and I understand that. So, uh, but I'm good with lenders. I'm good at finding value and I'm good at uh, a team building. So I have no problem putting myself in the fire in those problems. Were you landscape? Were you actually pushing the lawnmower or were you just creating a business? Yeah, no, I was definitely pushing the lawnmower. So, okay. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, I feel like it's hard to have a landscaping company if you're not the one doing the work, right? You're, you're absolutely right. And it's funny, my, my wife runs a commercial uh, residential and cleaning business, but they're very similar in how they, how they operate. Um, she's got like 18 staff, but the, the difference uh, with her is like for every, every route you have, we need like a big truck and like $100,000 worth of equipment behind it. And she can get, you know, a new nice Civic and some cleaning supplies. And you're like, so there's a lot of liability with, um, with landscaping and, uh, you know, it's different. You're, you're in where you work. Uh, before in Jersey, so a, a colder climate. No, 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 no. Long Island, New York. Long Island. <laughs> Don't confuse. Why do people confuse New Jersey and New York? Oh my gosh! Yes, this yeah. is this is all the time, even especially out here in South Carolina. They know no, I'm they, from Long Island. They're like, oh, and they just throw it out there like I'm from Jersey. I'm like, don't you disrespect me like that. My mom's from yeah. Jersey. I hated going to Jersey. I had to go there to my grandma's nursing home all the time every weekend when I was a kid. I hate Jersey. I love the people. You guys are awesome. But at the end of the day, I'm not, I'm not from Jersey. I'm very proud. I'm from Long Island, New York. (laughs) Long Island, New York, but exactly same uh, weather there where it's, you know, it shifts between uh, the winter and and summer there. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a ton of work. And I think if you don't have small engine repair uh, experience, you're going to have a difficult time from experience because where we've spent a lot of money is, is, is in exactly that repairs to new equipment. So, you know, hindsight's 2020, it's an easy barrier of entry to get in if you just want a lawnmower and, and start pushing that. But when you start to expand, um, yeah, it, it's it's not um, it's good for experience if you're if you're starting small. It's not something knowing what I know now that I get back into. But I'd like a healthy vending machine company as well too. I've done like I said, I've I've, I've tried a, a bunch of things to figure out uh, what would work. <laughs> Did you expand that? You expanded that landscape company. Yeah, so we got about 500 like year-round clients. So um, for uh, for lawn cuts um, uh, and snow removal, but you know, if, if I'm honest, like that's you know, the, some some years we make money and some years we definitely don't, and, and it yeah. comes down to uh, the equipment issues that you might have, even when we're we're good with labor, and of course, always the team is a big factor. But I'm not actively running that one either. It's similar with uh, eFresh Meals. I'm I'm very active in in SID developments, but um, which is the real estate. Um, but, you know, even there, I really like teams to have their, their autonomy. So, like, the guys, my, my president, Ryan, and the COO, Alex, are the guys I spend the most time talking to, along with lawyers, accountants, and, um, uh, and whatnot. But, you know, if I don't bug them during the day, they're going to try not to reach out to me. Because we've also done, you know, the same thing where we try to create a problem-solving environment, right? So, I don't want people just, like, panic calling me every single time. So, we've created, you know, I think a pretty good culture with that. And what it allows me to do again is focus on on learning and, and try try to think of next steps because it's difficult when you're so inundated with the day-to-day operations of your of your business because then you you really can't think. And and it's it's hard because a lot of it's visualizing and things. So you don't it's hard to say um how it would be so different. But um I know that if you don't have that space and that time away, you're not able to think about uh next steps in what you're doing because a typical yeah. routine for a business owner is work eight to 12 hours a day or even longer 
and uh, and you don't really have that that downtime to either learn, process, or try to think about next steps. And and it really helps if you're not um, if you have more time to think about it, which doesn't happen over overnight because you have to obviously hire and and, and get there. Yeah, um, but it's something that helps now. Yeah, the only reason I ask so much so many questions about the landscaping things is because my best friend has a landscaping company and. Uh, he does it all on his own. He might have like one kid with him here and there. And um, I think he's thought about expanding a few times, but um, he's kind of happy with the money he makes, but you can't do it forever. You know, that's a lot of work on the body. Uh, you end up having an injury or something like you're screwed, uh, but he does like 80 properties a week. And then he does, you know, things during the winter. He kind of actually just takes off and goes on vacation. Um, he doesn't do the snow removal and stuff, but um, I was good. just wondering how, if it's easy to scale a business like that and, and, and really move on from, because right. He is making money. That's how he made, you know, he makes great money. It's pretty much all cash and, you know, it's just, uh, you know, him doing it. But, um, but I think if you scale that, you start bringing other people in, I think it's, I would just, ima- I think it, I would think it's a tough business to scale. And like you said, now, like you have all these year round people and you created this infrastructure, you know, you have, well, you have a CEO and everything like a president and like you created like, yeah. What did you, how did you, what'd you do? Yeah. 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 So that's mainly for, they're pretty focused on, on SID developments, but they also have a call a week with the other companies for the landscape. Oh, okay. We have a general manager and in, in, in management, but yeah, okay. my, my infield, as I call it, like I'm the pitcher, so to speak. And then I'm pitching to my president, who's Ryan, who we actually call him their EPP is the executive people pleaser uh, over, over president. So we kind of have our own title uh, there. And then our first baseman is our COO, Alex, and he's, um, um, a very analytical Richard Ivy School of Business graduate, um, you know, very good at building out systems and teams and reports and, and data and all the stuff that I'm, I'm terrible at. Uh, and, um, and then we go from there and we have our, our, our lawyers, I call it at second base and our accountant at um, uh, third base. And then I, I add uh, lawyers plus our coordinator because we have, you know, a few for corporate litigation and uh, real estate. Um, so that, that kind of sets up my infield. So I say our lawyers are at shortstop as well, too. And then from there, we have, um, you know, just in SID developments, we have the property management team, the construction company, and the acquisitions team. So down from there, we have our lead paralegal um, who runs all of our property managers, and that's our left fielder. And then in center field, we have our, our lead project manager for, um, uh, for the renovations. And then in the right field, we have our, um, uh, our lead agent for, for the acquisitions team who deals with the other agents. So we create that kind of top-down system. You have to when you're scaling a business. That's ultimately what you want to get to is how do I get an executive team? Because then, then you're dealing with um, these people who have to be highly accountable. So if there's any problems all the way down, so we've got like 60, 70 plus uh, staff members, but we're working with like 200 plus uh, contractors at any given time just in, in the real estate um, side because we hire uh, locally. We don't hire the labor in-house. We just manage it with our site supervisors and make sure uh make sure people are people are moving right but so you um, take bids on on every deal and then your project manager just kind of oversees it yeah so while project manager oversees the site supervisors and the site supervisors go to site every day they'll go to you know 10 15 sites to make sure that people are people are moving so um yeah but we work with a lot of the same trades so we have to build up a network in those cities and we just basically have you know full-time work provided so if they can handle two to three sites okay they're on two to three different sites and um so, so that's how we do it. But when, when you create that accountability, there's only a few people that can be responsible for things. And then now my job is only to find four or five all-stars. So I need the best COO. I need, in my eyes, the best person that I fit with, right? And uh, and president. And it's a little bit of balancing personalities as well, too. 
But those are the only people I'm really accountable for. And then they're super, uh, who they're accountable to is the, the person next from there. So that person needs to be an all-star for them. And if anything goes wrong, it's on that person uh, to be accountable for it. And that works the whole way down. But it creates those uh, levels that you need because there's no way you can communicate with dozens of people every single day and get the same message across, right? So you have to yeah. give a small group of people you can get that message to. Then you know you're going to be more um, successful. Uh, but you know, it, it, of course, it takes time to get there. That's just the the ultimate goal. I've I've understood that before I could afford it, or just re- reading books like you know the real tycoons or biographies of Richard Branson or they, everybody's got different approaches. But you're like, okay, I kind of see where this goes and you're like well how are people able to, to or i guarantee you like you know lorenzo when he's running there's only so many people i mean i know uh dana was his right hand man right there right and that's where a lot of his communication would would go through um and now you got hunter who handles a lot for dana too which is probably very smart i you know uh a lot less liability when you have a lawyer speaking on your behalf but there's only yeah. a small group like dana's a great communicator i'm sure he can talk to a bunch of fighters but for actually key decisions there's probably only so many people that he talks to, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's key. Uh, you know, I, I haven't done it on my own where I created this infrastructure and, uh, but every part, every organization that I've been a part of or, you know, uh, like business, successful business that I've seen or heard of, it always has like a, you know, that clean infrastructure. And it's not like they're talking to so many different people, you know, it's, um, it's one, two, three, maybe four guys. That's it. And then it just kind of distributes down the line. Yeah, because you know how else? It's so much easier for me to to you know, and it's probably the wrong way, but be be upset with just this one person and be like, hey, this what are you doing? This is this is your responsibility because then they have to hold that accountability down the line. So, yeah, it's uh, you know, and back to the landscaping. Yeah, you're right. Like if you're doing it yourself, you can make money. A lot of the the service based um, businesses you can, and it'll yeah. bring your hourly quite a bit. But you also care more about your equipment. You're doing a lot of things that you, you might not necessarily be able to hire out for. So uh, you're going to have to do a lot more revenue in order to replace that. And um, a lot of times, yeah, like in landscaping, I'm not sure if it's uh, always worth it in, in, in that regard. And if you start doing commercial, then you're open to liability on that side for slip and falls, which people love to sue for. So it's, uh, you know, landscaping is definitely a, um, a good industry to learn what you're doing, but it's definitely a tough industry too. It, it definitely is. Yeah. So with your, um, going back to, now I'm going to real estate, um, in your real estate business, you have, it's all buy and holds, right? So you buy at a, at a good cost, you'd hope because it's kind of depressed real estate projects and then you renovate them and that brings value to it. And then you get cash flow with the renters. Um, but I would feel like the, the most money would really come by selling it at some point, right? Because you have all this value in, in real estate. Um, is it constantly like learning how to, because you have so many properties now, learning how to uh, take loans off of the the real estate you have to create more, um, like and then money wise, are you just it's just the cash flow from renting is how you make your money? We uh, make it a few different ways now, right? Because I have the acquisitions team and in the renovations company, I don't directly bill our, our corporations that way, but um, we do get a vendor rebate from there. And and even Home Depot, we have a, a kickback from Home Depot for ordering materials because we get them in volume. So that allows me to help fund the infrastructure. The property management company is set up very similar to, to other property management company in terms of the fees. Uh, ours is less because it's internal. I'm not going to overcharge myself, but that helps fund the property management company. But 
Uh, yeah, a lot of it is is cash flow. But since we know how to create value, we work with our lenders and and uh, and you know could pretty much as long as they fit our metrics, purchase what we want. Like we did, we raised probably about 70, 75 million in properties about this year. Um, mm. And that's on the purchase side. And then of course, then we renovate them and then create that, uh, that value and, and increase and then refinance them from there. So we don't, I don't rely uh, directly on cash flows just to scale, but we have to make sure that we're creating that value. So we're always in, in check and, you know, um, whether it's our, our lenders or, or, or the banks, making sure that, you know, we're not buying properties and renovating and not getting any increase. We also have, you know, in Canada, we, we've got a good, we've got good economics anywhere. So even these depressed areas, they're not really depressed. They have good median income. It's just the housing market has been flat for decades. And my thoughts are always, if, you know, if you don't have a, ut- a utopic uh, situation for housing is all homes are 10 to 20% above the cost to build. So say it's, you know, 200, it's, it's much more than this in Canada, but $200 a square foot to build a 2000 square foot home. Okay, that should be four hundred thousand. Then you know the pro- appropriate price would be four fifty or four forty to five hundred thousand, so that there's some margin there for um, the builders. But what happens is you go to Toronto and it's very high demand, or you go to New York and um, it's very high demand in Manhattan, so the price goes way up. And it's like okay, now it's fifteen hundred dollars a square foot, even though it only costs two to three hundred dollars a square foot to build. So I don't focus on those areas where you know I'm trying to make a two million dollar home a four million dollar home, but those ones that those cities where the average under the cost to build, if they're under the cost to build, it means there's not going to be any developments there because what kind of a builder is going to build if they can't make any money. And over time that creates a recessionary environment because the homeowners are getting screwed. If they're, you know, we're told it's the American dream, so to speak, or even the Canadian dream to own your own uh, primary residence. And the reason that was so good is because on average for the past hundred or plus years or whatever, um, it's risen at the rate of inflation. And now with leverage, okay, say a home's rising three to five percent a year, but you only put twenty percent down. Well, okay, your you know your returns are actually four or five times that um, because you're you're moving with inflation. But if it's been flat or it goes down, you're paying property taxes, you're paying insurance, your actual cost of living is more than it is to rent. So you're yeah. losing money, and you would have been better putting money in the stock market. So now all these people who bought homes in these cities are getting screwed, and there's no way to really get out of that. Um, unless there's some kind of economic stimulant. And again, in Ontario, like there's some of these areas, like there's strong median incomes. It's not a big six figures, but the median income in those areas are, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90,000. And you can go a, a good hack in, in the States for lower scale. I have some thoughts for larger scale and, and working with the, the local mun- municipalities because in some of the impoverished areas, the city owns a lot of the land because people haven't paid their property taxes. And they're mm. more than willing if you, if you go there to like give you land and uh and do stuff and there's if you're creative subsidies that you can do but from a a new investor perspective in the states i've always been like you know the best thing to do is go a what are the cheapest states in in the united states in terms of in terms of homes so you google that okay you get a list of the four you go okay what is the highest income cities in those states and you'll see you'll have places that uh, i can't think off the top of my head but you know homes that are under 200 or around 200,000 that are brand new but the median income's over 100,000 a year and you're like okay well those are pretty strong factors. And, and, uh, and for newer investors, uh, I think those are, are things that they can, they can look at because also a strong income typically means, you know, these are other factors in there, but you're going to have uh, a low uh, vacancy in the city as well, too. Um, mm. So there's, there's hacks like that. In Canada, like I said, we have inventory problems regardless. We're bringing in over 400,000 a year. We only build 200,000 units. And, in, and I know that unless we go to these other areas, 
and build them up, um, we're never going to, we're, we're not going to get our, our inventory up. Like we're, we're, we have a larger land mass than the uh, United States, but we're only 35 million people. we got 10% of the population, um, you know, most precious resources in the world, second to Saudi Arabia, if you're, if you're including oil in there, but um, it, it's, we need way more people in Canada and our, and our total vacancy across the country uh, is under 4%. So, and that doesn't it's just too cold. Bad. You just need global warming to really kick up and then everyone's yeah. going to move to Canada. It'll be good. Well, they're already moving, right? Like they, they, there's a lot of people in there and, and the government wants to have, you know, hundred million people by, you know, 2100. And uh, so it, it's going there. It, it's definitely a different market than the United States for real estate. But with us, like I said, we got to go to these areas and bring new developers online. And I'm not a uh, built from scratch developer. We've done some like that, but I mean like, Go to these areas and kind of fluff them up so they can get to a price that makes sense so that new developers who have never been around could come online to increase our inventory. Because the guys in Toronto, around GTA and those areas, they're not going to magically do 10 times more projects. And this is something I think... Um, I don't know if the government understands it, to be honest, but but that's what they need to do. And, and, and you're starting to see it. Like, you know, I can't by any means do this all on my own, but... We invest a lot of money in, into these cities, and over time, you see more people do it, and then um, uh, you know it winds up really creating a lot of economic value for uh, uh, for the cities that that need it the most. What's your What's your thoughts on like the current market and uh, you know just real estate in general right now with inflation and all the money that's been printed? Where do you see this all heading? Basically, we're getting to the good topic. So, um, yeah. you know, I've always been, I've been a rich dad, poor dad, Robert Kiyosaki guy. So, you know, cash is trash. been saying that for, for a long time. But, you know, it, it's interesting. Since 2008 or 2009, I should say, we've been increasing the money supply by, uh, by about 5 to 8% a year. And if you look at all of, you know, the macro trends, all of our assets have been rising at about 5 to 8%, with the exception of, you know, Pokemon cards and Bitcoin in, in, in 2019, 2020, which skyrocketed. And then the NASDAQ as well. So, um, a lot of markets are, are, they tend to rise at the rate of inflation. They tend to rise at the rate of money supply increase. So it's a little bit of a, a, a game. And one of the big shifts that's happening right now is that, you know, millennials, I just did a video on this. Millennials have actually overtaken baby boomers. So that's uh, 1981 to 1996, I think, officially on, on, uh, on the books. But they're the largest demographic in, um, in the United States now. And that's huge for a number of reasons because... You know, it was the baby boomers for, for such an extended period of time. And wherever the baby boomers go, those markets are going to increase. So in the late early, uh, late 80s, early 90s, they're all buying Corvettes, you know, um, and bonds and whatnot. And we can get into the, the, you know, issue with bonds as well, too. But everything that they were doing, which was a very saving, uh, heavy environment, like invest for the long-term future because nobody was retired back then, is kind of being flipped on its head. So what was traditionally a safe haven asset, which are like bonds and securities and whatnot uh, is now the opposite and that's just because the you know economy like it's like a living organism right and if you have you know all this money stuffed away with the baby boomers which they do right now they have a tremendous amount of, of wealth that's locked up in bonds and things that don't create uh immediate value it, it's difficult you're kind of starving the economy and now what you're seeing is that the younger generation in terms of equities and real estate they can't catch up to the older generations there's no way they're like wait you bought a home in the 50s for $1,500. Like, you know, how, what am I supposed to do now? No. In the equities markets, although I, you know, I still think both are going to do good. Um, I think there's going to be a compression of cap rates. So I think real estate is going to continue to rise. 
um, whether that be through you know smaller investors purchasing or or um, uh, the search for yield uh, for for hedge funds and and whatnot. But uh, I think that the the rules of money are definitely changing, and um, in these new markets that are being created, whether it's crypto NFTs is very early, so I won't really get into into that too much. But um, the younger generations need to find a way to get that capital, and they will. Because it's got to transfer down. I mean, bonds are 0%. The government buys $90 billion worth of bonds a month. Because if they don't, the whole thing's going to crash. So it's a, it's a little trick right now that they have to do. And money changes all the time. And we had Bretton Woods in the early 1900s. And we changed the gold standard. And then Nixon took us off the gold standard. And um, this happens over and over through history. But what governments have to do to keep the society on the up and up is increase the quality of life. And that's what they're focused on. And I think right now we're trying to transition into a system where it's like, okay, we know that the fiat game, and especially the younger generations, is, is you know kind of kind of a joke. Like it works, but it's it's not really backed by anything. And the only way we're keeping it floating right now is by printing absurd amounts of money. And I don't think there's going to be any way to stop that. I have some theories that you know maybe educationally we could teach people like, hey, you don't hold uh, you know cash; you got to invest it. But you have to change the the way that you know people invest because you know saving the way risky assets have now become uh safe assets and and safe assets have now become risky because you're losing out to inflation so Mm. you know stagnant capital is uh is very tough on the economy we can't afford to pay out the the pensions for retirees that you know we thought we might be able to um and this goes back a long ways is you know the road to hell was paved with good intentions but when we started you know social security uh, the average life expectancy was like 64 years old, right? So now it's 80 something. And you're like, okay, so it was never really sustainable the way that it was um, set up. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a, I definitely am a big believer in, in cryptocurrencies and um, just because I see it as a way out. So for, you know, generations, really, um, the largest countries in the world have controlled the assets of the world by loaning money to other nations. And we'll say with good intentions, uh, but for control of resources. So they lend them the money, but they're not, they don't have the infrastructure or knowledge to build out these facilities or oil rigs or, or, or mining, anything. Mm-hmm. So they take the first world's uh, money to loan it to them. Then they give it back to them to build up the infrastructure. And in theory, it's supposed to help out their economy. But, you know, we've obviously seen that it, it doesn't in many ways. And, and the largest countries, you know, in particular America, can, can print their way out of a situation to lower their debt. Whereas um, other countries that they try to do the same are going to create hyperinflation because they're not creating enough productivity with their dollars. So it immediately devalues. And because of that, you, you're never having an equal economy. You can't have, uh, you know, uh, the first world nation is always going to be in favor. And so when you see countries, you know, uh, El Salvador or, or whatnot, I don't know how it's going to play out, but they've got a young president. He's like 40 years old, right? And he's all into Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. If you look at the millennials in general, they're they're into them. They much prefer cryptocurrencies to gold, and I think gold's like looks cool too. I'm not against gold at all, but market adoption is everything that you look for. Um, these meme these meme coins are when AMC stock and that went up. You got to see where the herd is going and where the adoption is going. And if everybody's buying cryptocurrencies, you know, mainly Bitcoin, say the top ones, Ethereum, things like that. I mean, it's very likely that those are going to do well in the future, especially if the millennials want it. They're going to control the voting. They're going to control um, where revenue goes. And uh, and those are the markets that are really going to do well. So you go, what do millennials like? I mean, 
They love, you know, clean energy efficient things like green energy. I know the mining sector is going to have a huge overhaul over the next 10, 15 years to become a much, you know, cleaner uh, image so that, you know, they can attract more investment capital because the, the clean companies like Tesla and things like that, they don't care what the valuation is. They just want to run with it. It's like a conscious capitalism approach to the 21st century. So I think that uh, the mining sector, which is very undervalued right now, uh, commodity metal mining is going to explode um, because nickel demand. We're producing, you know, probably like one tenth, one quarter of the nickel we're going to need over the next 10 to 15 years. And that's an industry that's been so underdeveloped for so long. It costs billions of dollars to build new mines. You have Elon Musk being like, you know, trying to encourage every nickel uh, producer in the world to, to, to up what they're doing because these batteries take a lot of, you know, lithium, nickel, copper, uh, all, all of these quantity metals are going to be a massive demand for, for renewables and electric vehicles. In the future. So that industry is going to do well. It's very undervalued right now. The mining industry in commodity metals is probably the most undervalued in terms of equities. Like you're getting a, a price for earnings of like three to four as opposed to like 60 to 100 to one. In a are, lot you gonna, are you going to start a mining company? Start mining some nickel? <laughs> well, so Northern Ontario is huge on that already. I, I do like, you know, invest in, a, you know, uh, on the equities market in, in some commodity metals like Vale's a big one. They've got almost a 20% dividend right now. And they're one of the largest. Uh, uh, mining companies in the world, and they're big in Northern Ontario as well too. Vale, um, all right. Yeah, Vale, uh, Canada Nickel, which is going to be uh, one of the largest producers of, of nickel over the next few years, but they're able to bring it out of the ground in uh, an energy efficient uh, way. So, like zero emissions, they they produce. So that's one. The other one, renewables, we know is going to do well because that's going to continue to receive funding. The government is paying into renewables. So whether it's ETF or trying to find the right companies that do it, you know, renewables are going to be big in the future. Another huge market that is massive that that is going to get that adoption is going to be space. Space is, you know, basically limitless to what it can be. And right now you have private companies like SpaceX uh, and um, uh, Blue Origin and uh, Virgin Galactic, which is public, but doesn't make any money. Um, those those are the, the, you know, the pioneers of that industry. It's like the, the car market for back in the early 1900s. Um, and what they're doing is they're creating, you know, they're trying to commercialize it and they're going to, I know you can already sign up to go up to space, but that's something that the government is heavily funding. That is a tiny industry right now. There are ETFs available like UFO, uh, is one, I know, um, ARK investments, uh, which is a big, big group out there that, uh, that has some ETFs there to get exposure there. Um, but that's a market that's going to explode and get massive market adoption that I think will be, you know, a hundred plus times the size it is now. And I say that because, um, like, to go back to cryptocurrencies, we have now over 100 or 200 million users. It was 40 million, the, you know, before that. It was 20 million before that, 5 million before that. And uh, market adoption is uh, happening at such a fast rate in so many different industries that, you know, that's the thing that you, you should really pay attention to. If crypto goes down, you go, okay, what are the adoption rates? What are the active wallets on here? Because that's that's really the trend that's changing, and it's only a matter of time. Um, you know, before it catches on more and more. And I know that as soon as the banks who have been working frivolously or, you know, feverishly to uh, regulate cryptocurrencies, as soon as they're allowed to hold them on the balance sheet, uh, it's going to be a game changer as well, too. So just, just to add that in, say we have a two and a half trillion dollar market cap in cryptocurrencies, and now the bank can hold those assets on their book. And then they can then loan out against that, right? Due to fractional yeah. reserve banking, then they could do 10 times as much as that. Well, now we got another $25 trillion worth of value coming into the economy just by them holding those assets 
uh, on their books, right? So yep. I think crypto is going to do well because the millennials like it. I think space is going to do well because the millennials like it. I think the metaverse is, is which is just a merging of, uh, you know, digital and physical is going to do well because again, the, the millennials, you know, are, are embracing it as well too. And um, yeah, these are, these are the things that I try to look for. I think just follow, follow the kids and that's where we go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you ever see the movie Ready Player One? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, do you see as a real estate guy, that's all physical stuff here on this planet in, in real life. But if we really do believe in the metaverse and people are going to get addicted to this, there's no pain, there's no anxiety. You're stuck into this world where you get to be anything you want to be. Um, does that take away value from real estate in the real world? If everyone's going to be buying real estate in the metaverse world? It on, it honestly, it honestly could. Um, the problem is, is that you know the governments are also very aware that the real estate market is very important to the economy in general. So they'd have to to find a way to offset it without causing massive ruin. They would don't they don't want another two thousand eight. You know they don't want the bond market to collapse, right? So um, and uh, and there's about four hundred trillion dollars worth of wealth in in real estate, which is insane. Like if you're comparing that to the crypto market or even stock markets globally are just over 100 trillion right so it, it's a massive market that um it could it could honestly it could be a- affected um but it's such a tough thing to um it doesn't seem like it would happen quickly but it is something that I, I truthfully think about because I'm like what do you what do you need if you have those on and you're able to you know do I even need clothing anymore or is it just digital skins right and ultimately, like I said, the, the younger generations are going to find a way uh, to get this capital from the baby boomers, whether they like it or not. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And um, in what and how that goes is, you know, uh, yet to yet to be determined. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, a big shift right now with, with governments trying to trying to figure that out. And how do we make a smooth transition from our current system to making sure there's ample supply for everyone? Because we do have the wealth to do that in a lot of ways. It's just not distributed properly. Yeah. This is, I, I got to get going. I got to go to a mountain house. This is going to be my last question. I apologize, but no, no, I'll be um, so this is all good. Yeah. Um, so do you think, do you think a crash is in that inevitable at this point with the money that's been printed? Um, uh, one of the things I talked about with David green, you know, he's the host of the bigger pockets podcast, real estate. Um, I know, you know, him. um, is that, uh, you know, inflation is a big deal right now. If you if you have a house that you bought for five hundred and now it's looking like it's seven hundred, now you think you have an extra two hundred thousand um, dollars. But I think uh, real estate is just a very clean barometer on inflation right now. And if you're spending as if you as have this extra two hundred thousand dollars, it could be a dangerous, dangerous play. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the governments are going to do anything they can to try to avoid. The crash. That's that. That's a big thing, and I think that the ability right now to transition to a new uh, monetary system in whatever capacity. I mean, you know, people go one world order or one currency. Well, look, there's going to need to be something um, because you know you can't just continue to print indefinitely and turn a blind eye. So I know that they're going to do everything they can to avoid a crash. <laughs> I think it's such a, a delicate game of cards to do that at this point that I don't. I can see them trying to get a way out and, and trying to learn. Of course, anything happens and people are like, oh, well, we have recessions all the time. But, you know, there is no real recession. I can see that wouldn't be really large at, at this point. And I, and I feel like, like I said, there's, there's some tricks that they could do 
whether it's you know getting cryptocurrencies onto the balance sheets and and um, you know maybe slowly phasing out the way the currency system currently works that could avoid a crash. This is what I would like to see, obviously, mm-hmm. um, because if you do the same thing over and over again, inevitably you're going to crash. But um, right now, the savings rates of everybody is still you know through the roof. And you go to Vegas, you know, for the fights you've seen. Uh, it's still crazy, you know, it's popping off and, and Canada has higher savings rates than they've ever had. The United States does. And a lot of it is what you said, because of inflation, if your assets gone up and now you're spending like that asset has gone up. Um, so the question is, you know, I don't know. Um, I think that there's a way to avoid it. I don't know if the powers that be are in tune with it enough. Like, you know, China's run by Goldman Sachs, really. Yeah. The United States is run uh, not by Goldman Sachs. And so it's a, it's just a, you know, a little bit different uh, how it runs. So truthfully, I can't, I can't answer it, but like in my own head, I'm like, okay, how do you avoid that? And I see things that they could do to, um, to avoid like a, you know, a big recession or or depression. I think it's going to be tough to stop. I don't think the same thing's going to happen in real estate, even the States it's too liberal on lending. Um, People seem to have more money. And even if they're buying the homes, a lot of them are cash offers and, the way it switched over, I, I, you know, you can argue that both ways. I've seen very smart people think we're going to have a huge uh, real estate recession, and then you had Grant Cardone saying that, hey, I think we're going to have a compression of cap rates. I think they're going to go up, and it's just going to be uh, fewer owners. And you know, I can see both scenarios playing out. That's why I like long-term rentals because it's like, hey, if it goes up and down, I'm, I'm not too concerned. It's you know more about um, uh, the cash flow. So I, I, my answer to that is, I hope that we can avoid it, um, but you know recessions and, and crashes always happen. I just think it would be kind of a big one. And if you look, they learned from 2008 to 2009, although people, you know, go, oh, you know, it took, it was bad. It was a big recession from 2009 through 2019. We had the biggest bull market in, uh, in, in the history uh, of, yeah. of the world. And now with all this printing, it's different. It doesn't go uh, as far. And we have a huge spending deficit, but again, I kind of feel like they're, you know, government's pulling out to try and build something, uh, new whether they get there or not in time is a, is a different story but uh, i could see ways that we could avoid something like that but y- you never really know is, is, is the truth. And, and the and and this is the other thing that I, w- I would think if we if it is going to happen the people that take advantage of markets like like that are people who have cash on hand right who could buy up these depressed markets that when when you know the, the crap hits the fan um which is a risky game because inflation is going up. So if you have cash and you're not making much interest on it um, and you're not holding, holding to the inflation rate, uh, you're losing money. But then all of a sudden you have this cash that as soon as the hit shit hit, the crap hits the fan, you're ready to throw it in and, and buy up all these, all these properties or uh, whatever, whatever you want to buy up because it's going to be, it's way cheaper. Um, what, what was your, what would be your, your counter argument to that? Like holding the cash and doing that. The counter argument to that is that we we printed over 40% of the money that's ever been printed in the world in the past two years. And a lot of markets, my buddy just messaged Damn. me yesterday. He's like, um, you know, my favorite bottle of uh, scotch was $70 six months ago. It's now $100. I'm buying all the scotch in this in this uh, uh, liquor store and saying it as a joke, obviously. Well, he probably did. Yeah. But, yeah. but that inflation is, is, is huge. And, um, you know, we've seen that with champagne. My, my wife has a little champagne collection because back before I was like, Hey, you know, it's an asset if you don't drink it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, and, and on average, like whiskeys have risen even before, uh, it's crazy. Yeah. 11 it's a year. Yeah. And then again, well, that's like, I have watches, watches do. It's insane. 
the aftermarket Airbnbs, a lot of things. And those are new markets, right? So like the, the cards uh, industry, it's like, and I think that's where network adoption gets crazy because if you have, say the cards, uh, like Pokemon cards, all that has a user base of like 1 million and they're not printing any more of them. And now say the Coffee Breakers has made it famous, which is a, a company owned by uh, Dan Fleshman, who's awesome, amazing business guy and, and Steve Aoki, the, um, um, the DJ. Yep. And uh, they they've crushed this. They they love it, and I feel like they've added a ton of notoriety to uh, trading cards. Everything that's where like Logan Paul has, has gotten his cards. But now, if you bring that to the masses, you had you know uh, a one million people in the market, and now you've got ten million people in the market over the same inventory, and that creates you know exponential um, gains. So you're seeing these uh, new things come up like that, where the younger mentality or younger generations have this huddle mentality around different stocks or or assets or, or trading cards. And, um, you know, it, it's kind of cool because like I said, this is a way for them to create wealth, uh, in little pockets that, that wasn't there. Like the, the traditional assets, um, that have been bought up like crazy. Um, they don't feel as like an even playing field. So this is something that'll continue to happen. And again, with cryptocurrencies in the metaverse and things like that, like this is something that they know that the adoption rate of the younger generation is going to be much faster. And if they keep that momentum, eventually the firms, which is already happening, that control baby boomers money go, okay, now we got to get involved in this game as well too. And if you just get 5% of the capital in there, 10% of the capital in there, you know, you got a hundred trillion plus market cap on something right now that's 2.5 trillion that already looks old. People are like, you know, crypto is super inflated. Okay, well, what are the other options, right? So I'm not all in on anything, but I think that argument to holding cash is that the inflation is just too aggressive. And then if we have a recession, it went down 50%. You're only where you were two years ago. <laughs> Anyways, at yeah. that point, and um, with all the money that's circulating around, yeah, you know, I hate to say it's it, it's impossible. It's definitely not impossible for for crashes to happen because they're a lot they're psychological, but. Um, but you know the government's going to do everything in its power, and I think they'd rather cause inflation similar to you know the '70s um, to deal with this issue, and then I think make a transition. This is going to be where they make a transition to change the way uh, the the dollar operates or, or the monetary system or or something. Yeah. Oh man, I appreciate you coming on the show. I feel like I could I could talk about this stuff with you forever uh, because I do have a million questions, but. We got to go. Um, <laughs> thanks again, man. And uh, let's stay in touch. I let's do it, it. man. I'm, yeah. I, like I said, I love this. So whenever you want to have me on, I'd be you know more than happy. And uh, yeah, I'm sure I'll see you, uh, see you soon at an upcoming event. All right, guys. That was awesome. I hope you guys enjoyed the show with Robbie Clark. Um, he's an awesome dude. Uh, so smart. I, I loved, I'd love to see how talented he, he is. Um, at scaling businesses to take a business from you know him being running it all the time and then eventually get to the point where he has hires all these different executives and managers to take over the business uh, for him where he kind of just checks in with one or two guys you know every once in a while during the week uh, sounds pretty awesome and something I want to do at some point so it was uh, inspiring to hear him uh, figure that figure that out and put it to work. Uh, really cool to get to talk to him about the Jake Paul fight and Tyron Woodley and get his thoughts on what uh, he attributes that success for Jake Paul to. And uh, yeah, it was awesome, awesome show. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And remember, if you want to hear more conversations like this one I just had with Robbie Clark, all you have to do is click that follow button on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do your listening. 
Every podcast is also available on my YouTube channel. So go over there and subscribe if you haven't yet. I'll be back next week with another great guest. But until then, I'm Chris Weidman, and this is Won't Back Down. Thanks for listening.